You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. Hey, Seth, how is your memory? Well, frankly, it's pretty poor. <laughs> so is mine. Do you want to see an impressive memory trick, though? Well, sure. Okay. It calls for a human subject. In fact, I have one right here. Hi, Gary. Hi. <laughs> okay. I'm going to ask you some questions. Well, let's just see how you do on the answers. I okay. know that you have a pretty good memory, but we'll put it to the test. We will see. Okay. Gary, what's the name of the man who shot our 20th president of the United States, and who was that president? The president was Garfield, and the man's name, I think, was Gateau. Okay. Three countries. Just name three of the countries in the drainage basin of the Nile. There's more than three, but all you have to do is name three. Okay. Egypt, the Sudan, Ethiopia. Good. Yep. Gary, you're doing well. Um, name the very first Star Trek episode, or, or just name the title of two episodes in those early days. Can you name the first one, though? The Cage. That's the first Star Trek episode? Well, that's the pilot. The first episode with Kirk in it is called Where No Man Has Gone Before. We're going to give that to you. So, Gary, how would you describe your memory? Um, useless. But you have prodigious memory in some areas, don't you? Yeah, I don't know why. It's stuff just sticks. And what are those areas? Um, geography is one of them. Numbers. And then there's useless trivia like TV stuff that I don't know why. I just, it clings to my brain. Thank you for lending your brain to us. That's what I do. <laughs> okay, we'll see you later. All right, bye. So, Seth, we don't need to remember everything as long as Gary's around. We well, just have to keep him close. Exactly, but that's the problem. Gary isn't always sitting right next to you. So I rely on, you know, offloading my memories into, you know, books, notebooks, my computer, my iPhone. And that's nothing new. We've been offloading our memories since humans first jotted down that they were out of milk, or rather out of lentils and barley, since it was the Phoenicians who started this trend with their cuneiform writing. And it continues with the advancements in computers. And I think the advance, the first advancement will be the Gary 5000. But until that comes along, we have other advancements to look forward to. Right. We're now poised to wire up machines that will retain memory about everything. I know it seems as though our computers have a lot of storage already, but that's nothing compared with what's coming. The future, near total recall. No more post-its or strings tied around your fingers. Okay, no one really does that anymore, or either of those probably. No more drawing a blank on anything ever. And someday we won't even need to type or speak our queries because computers will be hooked up directly to our brains. All memory problems, they're about to be solved. Except you must remember this. The human brain evolved as much to forget as it did to remember. In fact, forgetting is essential for our biologically stored memories. 
I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science, where we step back to get the wide-angle view of science and technology and where they're headed. And given our biological need to clear out our memory banks, we ask whether we're prepared for a future in which forgetting is a thing of the past. It's forget to remember. And I forgot to pick up a new USB stick. Molly, let's hit the road. Okay. Okay, look around at all these uh, computer components here at Central Computers in Mountain View. It's a COSBA for computer parts, and, and that includes memories. Let me ask this gentleman here a little bit about computer memory. Uh, could you give me your name? Hi, I'm Ryan Driggett from Central Computers. Hi, Ryan. It's nice to meet you. Now, what device do you have here with the greatest amount of storage? What is that device, and how much storage does it have? We have four terabyte hard drives. That's a 3.5 desktop hard drive, and that's the biggest we have right now. So you just talked about terabytes, right? Yes. Okay, I can't get my head around a terabyte. Basically, a terabyte is more than any home new user will ever use. A terabyte of video is days and days of raw video coming out of a news camera. Okay, and would you be surprised to learn that there's more computer memory coming? Uh, no, technology is always advancing. We get new technology in weekly, sometimes daily, so I wouldn't be surprised at all. Finally, Ryan, how much does it cost to buy four terabytes of uh, storage? anywhere from about $200 all the way up to $400. Ryan, thank you so much. Happy to help. Four terabytes, 200 to $400, you know, that's $100 a terabyte. That's, that's really cheap, but the thing is, if we came back here in two years, he'd be telling us about drives that might have twice that storage capacity. At this rate, you'll have a few hundred terabytes of storage on your laptop in less than a decade, Molly. Okay, so if we look at all these packages here of hard drives and so forth, when we talk about the future of computer memory, will it eclipse more than everything that's in this store here? Well, I don't know how much memory is in this store. It probably won't eclipse that, but it'll be so much that you won't have to go to the Internet. Every time you want to know something, download something, get something, it'll be on your device. Did you get what you need? What are you, what are you here for? Yeah, I need, I need a, a USB uh, memory stick. That's around the corner here. Yeah, okay. I think I'll go for 64 gigs. And while you do that, you know, there is one guy who can tell us about the coming memory revolution. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's learn about the Memrev. Yeah, the Memrev. Okay, he'll introduce himself. Now, pay attention to this. Good morning, folks. This is Ramamurthy Ramesh. I'm a materials physicist. I work on new materials, information technologies, sensing technologies. I'm currently the Deputy Director for Science and Technology for Oak Ridge National Lab. I'm formally on leave of absence from University of California, Berkeley. Got that? Now, having heard Dr. Ramesh give his full introduction, let me ask you, did you pick up on what kind of physicist he is? I'm a materials physicist. Or where he works now? Deputy Director for Science and Technology for Oak Ridge National Lab. Did he begin his introduction with good morning or good afternoon? Good morning, folks. Didn't remember everything he said. Well, you know what? It doesn't matter. Dr. Ramesh isn't offended because he, more than anyone, understands that it soon won't matter what your gray matter remembers. Computers will hang on to the important facts of your life. But what's going to be truly revolutionary is the type of memory our computers will have. Because look, there are two types of memory today. Fast but expensive, like these memory sticks here and the RAM in your laptop. And slow but cheap, like those hard drives over there. That's long-term storage. But the revolution is going to obliterate the difference and turn two types of memory that we've had, really, since the invention of the computer, into one. They call it universal memory for obvious reasons. That's the type of memory you already have between your ears, actually. 
And so we say, what if we had a memory that looked and felt very much like the human brain, where you can store information for a lifetime, uh, perhaps 80, 100 years. You could also store it for very short times. You can process it very quickly. That is the so-called holy grail that everybody, including Indiana Jones, is going towards. <laughs> well, okay, that includes you. You're looking for this this ideal memory technology that's fast, that doesn't forget when you turn off the power switch, that can fit into a cell phone or whatever, and that doesn't drain the battery in 30 seconds. What, what sort of technologies are you working on to accomplish that? So you want something that has the feel of a magnetic material, which has spontaneously two different states that I can have for my ones and zeros. That's how I store information. You want something that looks like my semiconductor chip, which means I can access it with small electrical voltages. You want something which is very fast, maybe a nanosecond or faster. You want something which is essentially a few pennies per megabyte, which is very difficult to get. And so it has the attributes of all of the various storage technologies that we currently use, but all built into one. Uh, if I could give you an analogy, you want James Bond. James Bond is swashbuckling, he's handsome, he can use the Walter PPK like nobody's business, he can charm the ladies, he can do all of them. That's exactly what you want in this memory. Well, what could I look forward to? I mean, if I, if I were to ask you, hey, you know, I'm buying some sort of computing device, whether it's a, a laptop or a cell phone or whatever it is, uh, say 15 or 20 years from now, uh, would it have, you know, more than a terabyte of memory that was, if you will, as fast as the RAM memory in my computer now? I mean, would it be this universal memory? And if so, how much would there be? It's coming to an electronic shop near you. It's happening very rapidly. There are many different pathways that people are exploring. The particular pathway that I've been exploring is something called a ferroelectric memory, which means you have two spontaneous charge states, an up state and a down state, which gives you the binary states that we want to use to store information. But there are other technologies, the so-called MRAMs, magnetic random access memories. There are memories which use other properties of materials. You know, 20 years from now, the memory technology is going to look very different. Your computer is going to look very different. It may not have anything to do with the way we use it today. And that's the fun part of it. Well, maybe you could give me some examples of what I could look forward to if we had this, uh, whether it's ferroelectric uh, technology or some other technology, if I could get not a terabyte, but I could get 100 terabytes or 1,000 terabytes or whatever into uh, every device I own and it uh, doesn't forget and it, the disk doesn't crash and whatever. I mean, you know, how's that going to change my life? Yeah, so how it changes your life. Uh, think about this, right? In the early 80s, before the personal computer was invented, People used to do business with their lives very differently. Today, you can sit at home and do everything. You never have to step outside. So that is a major change in the way that we have evolved over the last 20 to 30 years using technology. Now, let's translate that to a memory device. What is it that stops us from doing huge amounts of information storage, for example, like the brain does? When you say a terabyte, terabyte over what area? 
Ideally, you want it to be a small, compact system that you can put into a pocket and walk away with that much information. Medical information, here's a great example, right? You're sitting there in India or somewhere in a village or in Africa, you could have somebody with a cell phone and huge amounts of storage capability, you know, store picture after picture after picture of the heart of a small child or something, transmit it back to Europe or the US and do the diagnostics from there. Uh, national security, you're looking at so much of information, whether it's satellite information or audio, video information, that you need to store and process. So in many different spheres of life, you do need memory devices. I mean, all the way going back to the human brain. But everything is going to involve so that uh, it becomes completely solid state, completely robust, you know, very flexible and very compact kind of devices. Well, where do you think this is all going, Ramesh? I mean, uh, the memory devices you're working on now, those are things for, you know, the next decade or so. But, you know, if you say, look, I'm, I'm going to store data down at the atomic level, maybe right. one bit per atom or 10 bits per atom or something. People have talked about doing that. I mean, if you work it out, that means you could put terabytes of information into a grain of sand. How do you see the ultimate memory storage device? The ultimate memory storage device, in my mind, is the, the electron itself, right? Or the wave function of the electron. And so this is very early stage, uh, not for storage, but people are using it for computing. Now, can I do quantum computing, where I use the many quantum states of the electron, of the wave function of the electron? So you could envision 30, 40, 50 years from now that all of these, what we think are really cutting edge science ideas, are manifesting themselves where you're storing information, not in a 100 nanometer size device, but in a single atom. So at that point, like what Dr. Emmett Brown says in Back to the Future, where we're going, we don't need big devices, we just need atoms. My goodness. Well, that sounds like a very interesting future because I can imagine my cell phone might have information from the DNA sequence to what they look like to their hobbies about every person on Earth. I could just carry that around. I could have anything I could find on Google uh, you know, just carrying it around every movie that was ever made. I mean, th this is all possible, isn't it? Absolutely, and it will happen. Uh, you could already see the precursors of that now. It's going to just happen faster and faster, for sure. Well, Ramamurthy Ramesh, thank you so very much for being with us today. It's a pleasure, Seth. Thank you very much for having me on your program. Ramamurthy Ramesh is? Materials physicist the Deputy Director for Science and Technology for Oak Ridge National Lab. Okay, so let's head to the car, and uh, it looks like that's the way that computer memory is going. Yep, and you won't forget a thing. But that's not actually how biological memory evolved. Hey, Molly, you can't seem to find my keys. Uh, well, you will find comfort in this, at least. Your brain, Seth, actually evolved to forget. Oh, wait a minute, here they are. <laughs> it allows you to function normally. Why, you must not remember this, next on Big Picture Science. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off 
an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. There's one highly functional memory system that existed long before digital storage, before pen and paper, chisel and stone, your brain. It's actually amazing when you think about it. Through billions of neural connections wired together with electrochemical synapses, you can conjure up the names of your two best friends or the pothole that sent you flying off your bike at age 12, the smell of your grandmother's molasses cookies. All those memories are there in your noggin. How much memory does the human brain have, actually? That's a good question for which there's no particularly good answer, apparently. There have been attempts to figure it out by counting all the neurons and the synapses and everything else in there, but it's not like just opening up your computer and counting the memory chips. Why? Why isn't it like that? It's because we can't just point to a, a synapse or a bunch of neurons and say, hey, that holds eight bits or something like that. I mean, we don't know how it works quite at that level. Well, do we have any idea how much storage there is? I mean, just a ballpark. Well, the estimates I've seen range from about one terabyte to about 100 terabytes. Now, hang on, hang on. So a terabyte is what, a trillion bytes? Yeah, that's a trillion bytes. Okay, so somewhere between one terabyte, a trillion bytes, to 100 terabytes? Yeah, yeah, 100 trillion bytes. It's a lot of bite pleasure. But for comparison, I mean, the computers of the future, and we just heard that, will have many hundreds of terabytes. Okay, so you would think, hearing that, that all our archive needs are set. These digital devices will retain all that our brain can and more. They'll hold on to everything. And as technologists have discussed on Big Picture Science, one day we might even connect these powerful chips directly to our brains. Such brain-machine interfaces could help people who have physical limitations interact with computers, for example. But it might also allow anyone's brain to tap into this stored information instantly. Okay, so we're winning the battle of poor memory, and that sounds like a good thing, right? Well, yes, until you recall that the human brain evolved to forget things on purpose. Neuroscientist Michael Anderson leads the Memory Control Lab at the University of Cambridge. Scientists there study the mechanisms behind retaining memories. But it could also be called the Forgetfulness Lab. Because, and now this may be encouraging for those who feel resigned to forever sending belated birthday cards, it turns out that not remembering some things is key to remembering others. Michael, we've heard so far in this program about the memory revolution that might be coming to computers so that they can remember an enormous amount of data, you know, maybe all of human knowledge or something like that. And eventually, maybe you could even put these kinds of memory chips into the human brain, all of which sounds great. I'd be scintillating at parties. <laughs> but our own human brain purposely didn't evolve to remember everything, did it? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, there's a, a lot of weeding and winnowing that goes on from the very first moment that we encode information until we retrieve it later on. So is this a matter of storage capacity? I mean, do we not remember everything only because we can't? I, I think more remarkable than any issues of storage capacity is the uh, problem of retrieving what we already know. Uh, we know a, a lot more than we're able to retrieve or remember at any given moment. I mean, a thought experiment I like is to ask people to try to remember every single thing that happened today versus last week versus three months ago versus a year ago, the same day a year ago. 
And by the time you get to three months or certainly a year, you're not going to remember very much at all. Like you'll be scraping to remember anything. But if I presented photographs or videos to you of things that happened on that day, chances are you go, oh yeah, oh, that's right. That's what happened. I remember that. And so there's a lot of information that's there that you can't get at. I see. So, okay, but there's a reason that we're wired to forget, presumably. I mean, this is the result of evolution, so, you know, we've been uh, kind of fine-tuned for the kind of existence we're expected to have, I guess, living on the savannas, I don't know. Uh, It's not a design flaw in the human brain that we can't remember everything. No, I I definitely don't think that. I think even if you could, you wouldn't want to remember everything, every minor, minute detail, embarrassment, painful moment, whatever. There are lots of reasons why it's useful for people to forget. One more prosaic and the other more kind of emotional. The prosaic example is just that it takes effort to pull something out of memory, particularly if it's old or if there are lots of similar things in memory. So you spend neural processing resources just trying to pull something out. And in the process of doing that, you end up suppressing or inhibiting the information that got in the way as you're trying to remember. And that's one of the important sources of forgetting is that rejection process. Uh, The second reason is emotional. So if being reminded of something makes you feel sad, angry, embarrassed, ashamed, whatever, people aren't very motivated to keep those kinds of memories and awareness for very long. And so you push them out. And and we've found that that process of pushing memories out actually makes them harder to recall in the long run. And we know about the neural systems that produce that. Is this a kind of a zero-sum game, a kind of one-to-one trade-off? I mean, If I want to remember, for example, if I decide somehow to remember the details of my trip to Japan, I I need to dump memories of the camping trip when I was 12. I mean, you know, do I have to always replace something with something new or... (laughs) That's funny. There's a famous quote from uh, David Starr Jordan, who was the one time president of Stanford University. He's an ichthyologist. He said, every time I learn the name of a fish, I forget the name of a student. Uh, (laughs) That is particularly true when it comes to similar information. It's not like learning one new thing will make you forget everything else, uh, even if it's unrelated, but it tends to happen when you learn two similar things. Like, for example, learning another language. People report when they learn a second language, they have a tendency to forget words in their native language. So there's competition between two languages. I know you've studied how we process the unpleasant experiences of our lives. Uh, what, what determines really whether we suppress or remember them? Because there might be some... Uh, advantage in remembering painful things because we'll avoid making that mistake again. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I, I, guess, I think it's important to, to just to spend a second to talk about what it means to suppress a memory because it might sound exotic. Really, it's not. It's basically what happens is, let's say you're walking around the corner and you see a car, the same car your ex used to drive, and you have that moment where you go, oh, you know, uh, you're reminded of your ex and all the unpleasant things and so forth. So you step back and you say, I don't want to think about that, and you push that out of mind. That moment is suppression. And we study what that is how it happens in the brain, and what are the consequences of doing that for later remembering of that experience. And we've shown that you're less likely to remember the thing that you push out of awareness in moments just like that. And so what determines whether or not you ultimately remember it or forget it? A couple of things. We're still studying this, of course, but a couple of things. One is your attentional ability. So we know, for example, that people with attention deficit disorder have a greater difficulty doing this. So if you think about it, what you're basically trying to do at that moment is ignore 
a memory and to push it out. And it's fundamentally attention. And if you have an attention deficit, it's harder for you to do. I think the second thing is the complexity and emotional intensity of a memory. I think it's far easier to forget annoyances and generally moderately unpleasant things than it would be to forget something that's truly horrific and and complex. Well, finally, Michael, I mean, we're developing new memories for computers, new technology for computer memory that might greatly increase the the memory capability of these machines that we carry around in our pockets, we put on our desks and whatever. Uh, And so they they might have memory that actually dwarfs the, the memory that a human might have would they also have to learn to forget? I think so. I, I think the emotional and motivational reasons for forgetting wouldn't apply, but the functional reasons would. So, you know, as saying before, one of the biggest problems we face is getting at the information that we have stored. So you can imagine how that problem would be magnified if every single thing that one of these systems was exposed to was retained. So the problem of accessing the right information in the right amount of time and not making mistakes. So the more you remember, the more likely you are to misremember. Like, for example, uh, did I take my pills today? Did I take my pills yesterday? So if you had lots of memories of taking your pills, and you, you couldn't remember whether I did it today or yesterday, that's potentially very hazardous, right? So it's actually kind of good to forget the prior episodes of taking your pills just so you can be more confident that you have the right information. Well, Michael Anderson, thank you very much for a very memorable conversation. <laughs> thank you too, Seth. It's been a pleasure. Michael Anderson is a neuroscientist at the Memory Control Lab. It's a cognitive neuroscience research lab at the MRC Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit at the University of Cambridge in the UK. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the honor of presenting to you one of the most remarkable men in the world. Every day, he commits to memory 50 new facts and remembers every one of them. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Memory. A question, please. Mr. Memory's prodigious memory skills made for quite a show in Alfred Hitchcock's 1935 mystery, The 39 Steps. But it also made Mr. Memory a political target after he memorized the details of a new secret weapon. And so in a dramatic-y, Hitchcock-y sort of way, it suggests the dangers of total biological recall. Now, we've just heard about how important forgetting is to preserving memory. But if you still yearn for infallible biological storage we can glimpse what this might be like by studying individuals who do, in some areas, have total recall. Neurobiologist James McGaugh at the University of California, Irvine, studies a group of people who have extraordinary autobiographical memory. His work provides insight as to what happens when the brain won't let go of the past. If I ask them about what they did on any day of their life, say roughly after the age of 11 and 12, they'll be able to tell me with high degree of reliability what they did on that particular day. And also, they'll be able to say what kind of public event of importance occurred on that day. So the way the way it works is this. I will say uh, March 17th, uh, 1994. That's my question. And the answer is routinely. Well, first of all, it was a Tuesday, if in fact it is a Tuesday, and they're always correct on that. So they know the day of the week for the date that I give. And then they'll say, well, you know, on that day, nothing very much happened. I had a a fight with my boyfriend or girlfriend, and then I went out to lunch with some friends, 
And then that evening uh, we went to a concert, but that was not a particularly important day. Oh, by the way, that was the date that this uh, rock star died of an overdose of a drug. Now, we know both of these things are highly reliable because for most of the subjects that we have uh, worked with, they have things we can use to make up a test about their lives, things that they have collected that the family gives us, and or they've maintained a diary. And just to be clear what they're able to do, they can remember the entire day from the moment they woke up? Well, uh, it's like our memory, us ordinary folks, our memory of yesterday. So I can ask almost anybody to tell me what they did yesterday. And they'll know the day of the week in most cases, and then run through the day. And that's what it seems like to me. Now, is it a particular kind of memory? You said autobiographical What kind of memory is that, and how does that differ from other kinds of memory that maybe they're not as adept at? Well, by autobiographical, I mean uh, remembering what happened to them. This is not like uh, our knowledge of who the first president of the United States was. We know there was George Washington, but no one listening to this has that as an autobiographical memory. We have that because we learned that in school. And we just know that. It's the same as knowing that one and one is two. But we don't remember when we learned one and one is two. Autobiographical memory is remembering details of one's life during particular times. Now, enhanced memory is something that many people claim they wish for. Do your subjects consider this extraordinary memory a gift? Yes, they all consider a gift. And none would wish to be without it because I've interrogated them many times on exactly that point. However, it bothers them to differential degrees, so that at one extreme are individuals who remember a lot of bad things that happened in their lives, and these bad things bother them, and they can't turn them off easily. At the other extreme, even these individuals, but uh, to some extent other individuals to a greater degree, remember the good things, and they savor them, and they like this ability. And they, they say to me, wouldn't you like to have a memory like this? Uh, what's wrong with you? Why can't you do this? They are as puzzled about us as I am about them. But yet this idea of remembering everything doesn't necessarily seem like a gift, even though at times there are things that we wish we could remember. Well, that speculation has a lot of following. Uh, as a matter of fact, many years ago, William James said that if we were to remember everything, that would be as bad as to remember nothing, because you have too much. And that is my view of the ability to learn and remember everything, because everything is is getting in the way of what you're doing at the time. It's important that we forget in order to get along in life. These people don't remember everything. What it is, is that the things that they have learned, they don't forget. That's a very different concept. It's not as though they're gobbling up every sensory experience that that they have. I want to um, move on and develop this idea of the importance of forgetting. You said that it's important that the brain does forget some things, which will come as a comfort to people who do forget things, I think. Um, What is the role of forgetting in the brain, and and what do you mean by that? Oh, it's a very complicated issue. If you have too many things coming at you at the same time, How can you get order out of your life? For example, you and I are are creating sentences right now. Too much information, readily accessible, readily available, would make it very difficult for us to 
articulate an idea and maintain a theme because we would just be flooded with too many ideas at the same time. So, excuse me, just to be clear on this term, when you say too much information, do you mean too much from the past, or do you mean like all the stimuli going around me right now? Both. Okay. Both. Let me ask you just a couple final questions that are a bit speculative. What if we could enhance the human brain with electronics or something, one day we might be able to do that with drugs so that we could remember more. As a neuroscientist, how would you react to that scenario? I think it's a bad idea. I think it's a very bad idea uh, for reasons that we've just been discussing, that to remember everything for for us folks is not an important thing. So if we could remember everything, I don't see that there would be a a serious advantage. It's interesting because it sounds like as a, as a researcher who studies memory, you may think that we're a little obsessed with memory, humans, yes. with improving it. Yes, yes, over-obsessed with it. Most major drug companies have for decades tried to develop memory-enhancing drugs. And most people that I've talked to when I speak to public groups, I ask them to raise their hands how many would like to have a memory-enhancing pill. Most of the hands go up. And for ordinary experiences and ordinary memory, we can do better at memory enhancement ourselves simply by paying attention and then rehearsing material that's particularly important to us. We have all the machinery to do that. And all of the machinery they have is going to be at least as good as any conceivable memory enhancing drug would be. James McGaugh, thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you. James McGaugh is a neurobiologist at the University of California, Irvine. And if you think you've heard bits of that conversation before, well, your memory is not playing tricks on you. It's part of an interview we aired with him in 2010. You know, what strikes me is that these people actually don't have better memories in some sense than we do. I mean, if you ask them about yesterday, they have the same level of detail that you and I would have. The problem is that two or three weeks later, I don't remember yesterday very well, and they still do. Now, the question that seems to come up is, if we have computers, as we heard at the beginning part of the show, that can retain everything, is that okay as long as they remain external to us, that they're not plugged into us in any way? But if they remain external to us, who cares if they can retain all the information that the world can provide? Yeah, I think that's a good thing. I mean, it's like having the local library. There's a lot more information in my local library than there is in my head, but it doesn't interfere with my life. It actually augments my life because if I need it, I can go get it. So if I have all that information in the computer, that's okay as long as it's in the computer. If I were to directly interface that computer to my brain, well, that might be something different. Okay, well, getting back to brains as they are now, if healthy brains are good at forgetting... Why is it that this ditty might now be in your head all day? Having songs stuck in your head is an incredibly common phenomenon. Find out how to unstick them. Also, designing computers that learn and retain what they've learned, like human brains. Forget to remember on Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. 
Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Yes, there are things we all wish we could remember, and then there are things we can't forget, even if we hold our hands over our ears and say, la, 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 la. I got la. you, babe. I got you, babe. You're humming it in the car, it loops in your head during staff meetings, and then hours later, tucked into bed, that same song plays in your head. You don't even like it. What's going on? Well, this phenomenon of this song in your head that won't stop, that's an earworm. That's right. That's what they're called, earworms. And it often happens to me. Only, in my brain, it's not a pop song. Whatever the genre, psychologist Ira Hyman has studied our ability to carry a tune, even when we'd prefer to drop it. Ira, I hate to say this, but last night I was tossing and turning with, (laughs) this sounds pretentious, Dvorak's Slavonic Rhapsody running through my head, and I couldn't get it out. I take it this is a pretty common phenomenon. I don't think the Dvorak is common, but having songs stuck in your head is an incredibly common phenomenon. For most people, it happens at least once a week, and for some people, incredibly frequently. Really? So what's the brain doing there? I mean, here it is in the middle of the night. What I want it to do is to shut down, and it hangs up on this piece of music like a, I don't know, an out-of-control jukebox. Yeah, and it just seems to be on repeat, right? A, A part of the song, not the entire thing, is what's playing when you've got that. To make matters even worse, sometimes it may go away, but then come back again later, just when you think it's already gone. So it's a really kind of an interesting phenomena in that sense, that you can have this thought that you weren't really wanting in your head, in your head nonetheless. This may just be me, but it seems to happen more often with music that doesn't have lyrics, at least at night. Is that just me? I suspect that one's more a question of what you listen to and what music you hear on a daily basis. For most people, when you ask them what songs are in their head, it's, it's pop songs that are in their head. But, but again, it's, it's actually the music they're listening to. So the typical way in which one of these pieces gets started is that something in the environment has queued it up for you, put it on your playlist, if you will, oftentimes hearing the song someplace or being reminded of something that reminds you of the song, a line from the song, an artist's name, or even a personal experience that brings the melody back to your mind again. Is there an explanation for why your brain is doing this? I mean, I've, I've read that during sleep, you kind of uh, sort of cement the memories of the day and stuff like that. I'm not quite sure why, you know, playing this music helps. The truth of the matter is that we don't have complete control over our thoughts, that they wander off in all sorts of interesting directions. And for most of us, we have a lot of involuntary or intrusive memories that happen during the day. And the reason I'm interested in songs is that it's kind of an interesting and easy way to explore the involuntary and intrusive nature of consciousness. Now, here's another phenomenon which I I think is tied to music, and that is that I find I can remember the lyrics to a song, an old rock and roll song. I mean, I can sing along to these things, even though I haven't heard them in I don't know how many decades, from way, way back. And yet, recalling the words of a book or a poem, not much luck there. Why is it that packaging prose in music is such a great way to remember it? It works for a variety of reasons. One is probably that old rock and roll song you heard a number of times when you were young. 
But the other part of it is that the songs have a lot of sort of additional information that help you reconstruct it generally accurately. So it's not just the content, the semantic content, but you've got this nice rhythmic structure that helps you. You've got this nice rhyme pattern that helps you recreate the words as you go to remember it. But it's not as easily accessible either. In order to know something that's in a song, you actually kind of have to start at the beginning and sing your way all the way through the song in order to know the content of the song. And that's very different from some academic material that you've studied or a short story that you've read, where you don't have to go through the entire thing to get to the piece you're looking for. So it seems that evolution somehow put a song in our hearts, or at least in our brains. Why do we have this ability? What, what was it good for 100,000 years ago? We can't really go back and see, but obviously it may have had some memory value. But I think that as much as anything, there's sort of a social cultural value of a group that comes together and sings together and dances together as a way of feeling connected with each other. Any suggestions on how I can get uh, this uh, broken record song out of my head the next time it begins to keep me awake? Yeah, I mean, we're kind of interested in that as well. One thing that we've found in terms of when the songs come back is there seems to be sort of a uh, what we call a Goldilocks effect here. If your mental load is really kind of light and you're doing things that are automatic or you're not really having to think too hard about them, there's like lots of space left over in consciousness for all sorts of thoughts to intrude, including a piece of music. And that might be the case when you're trying to go to sleep at night, right? On the other extreme, if you're doing something that's too hard, where you're not succeeding, your mind starts wandering there too, and that song may come back. But if you're doing something that's sort of just right, that really engages your cognitive abilities and sort of takes up most of consciousness, then there's not much space left over for those songs to come back. So if you get really engaged in something, then you can sort of chase the music away, if you will. If you're completely distracted by that music in your head at night, just get up and read a good book for a little while and see if that doesn't chase it away and light it shut back down. I'll let you know if it works. All right. Ira Hyman, thank you so very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Ira Hyman is a psychologist at Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington. Okay, well, the human brain has quirks. It remembers songs we don't like and forgets appointments that we need to attend. But as we've heard, it's all with good reason, which is reassuring. The brain knows what it's doing. I mean, it's an example of a turbocharged R&D study being conducted over hundreds of thousands of years. And one thing that it does well, indeed what many big brain animals do well, it learns from experience. It's the dream of computer programs to have their digital devices do the same. Computer scientist Larry Smarr says we're entering the age of cognitive computing. So given what we've heard so far in this show about the limitless storage capacity of future computers and the long history biological memory has of forgetting things, well, how can we combine the best of both memory systems, gray matter and microchips, and build computers that can work and learn like brains? Well, you know, it's all a matter of abstraction. As we learn more and more about the brain, as we sort of reverse engineer how living brains work from fruit flies up to humans, we are getting these aha moments where we say, oh, I see how that's sort of wired together totally different than the way we would do a computer. Like you might have, for instance, each neuron has a whole bunch of synapses that overlap with the others. And so maybe there's like, you know, a hundred or a thousand interconnections between two neurons instead of just one interconnection, the way there would be on a computer between, say, two transistors. 
And so you think, well, gee, maybe I could start engineering in silicon this kind of overlapping connections. And so you're not actually, you know, in a precise way modeling a neuron in silicon. You've abstracted a characteristic of the way the brain is put together. Let's look at one thing that the brain does well, mm-hmm. and that is the particular way in which it stores memories and then learns from those memories. And one of the advantages, my understanding, of cognitive computing is that you can have computers that actually learn from their previous experience. Absolutely. I mean, think about a robot that's wandering around in the world. The ideal is to do what a young child, a baby, does when they're crawling around in the world. You see, they don't have a set of concepts like table and mother. They build those up by interacting with the world. And then their brain literally rewires itself to get to the point that they can actually stand up and walk, for instance. Well, that's what we want to do with robots. And for instance, the Brain Corporation here in San Diego is one of the companies that's doing that, computers that learn. And so with a learning computer, you actually get it to gradually make fewer and fewer mistakes at times until eventually it's just incredibly accurate. It's interesting because that brings in another dimension, uh, maybe it's a sensory dimension, if you will. Mm -hmm. Babies learn about the world not just from the words that their mothers are speaking and the response and their imitation, but from sights and smells and touch and laughter and gestures. I mean, there's a lot happening for a child to learn and understand its world. And yet with a computer, it's data in, data out, and it's really just using one sense in a way, isn't it? Well, what you're describing is 20th century computers, not 21st century computers. Think about your cell phone. I mean, this is what drives me crazy. There are a billion of these things, you know, hundreds of millions of them that are very sophisticated smartphones. What do they have on them? They have cameras. They have multiple cameras, multiple video cameras. They have GPS chips. They know where exactly they are in three space. They have on board all different kinds of computers that allow them to do digital signal processing, regular sequential processing. I mean, think about the computer that can sit there and try to analyze, as the Google Brain Project did, to figure out what's a cat uh, by looking at hundreds of millions of pictures. It's all happening in the computer. And so we actually are building a planetary computer with billions of sensors of all different types all over the world, all feeding information in simultaneously to computers that are learning and learning and learning and learning deeper and deeper and deeper knowledge about the world and all of the people in it and all aspects of it. And that's the trajectory we're on for this century. But doesn't that also make you nervous? I mean, is that what we want, is a world in which (laughs) the computers are automated or they're autonomous and they're talking to each other and humans are out of the loop? Well, this is a really interesting philosophical question. I've said for several decades that where we're going is we're going to each have personal assistance now embedded in things like our smartphone, but with all the wearables and coming, it will essentially just be part of you and you won't have to actually, you know, carry it or look at it. And everything you do or say or look at or interact with, this thing is aware of and is remembering. And so it will become your constant companion. And I think a lot of the social issues that we have now about are the kids spending too much time looking at their smartphones, we're going a lot further than that. Are you spending too much time with your virtual assistant? 
Larry, what we've been talking about in the show, or one of the themes we've been exploring, is the difference between computer memory and human memory. And what we've heard from neuroscientists is that it is important what we remember, but it's also very important what we forget. Mm -hmm. So if we're creating computers that have any resemblance to how humans encode memories or how they learn, does that mean that at some point, if they become more human-like in their cognitive abilities, will they also have to learn how to forget? I hope that computers will learn to forget. Anybody who's had the experience of their disk drive getting full knows that probably 90% of that could be thrown away and they'd never care, they never need it again in their life, but the computer can't do it. So the idea of a sort of self-cleansing memory and prioritizing things that are more important is something that we really would like to see cognitive computers be able to do. On the other hand, I think all of us have had an experience where someone just says something or you see a site and all of a sudden a memory from 20, 30, 40 years ago comes brilliantly defined into your brain and you would have absolutely said that that memory was gone, but it wasn't. The idea that it's not so much that computers will need to forget, but actually maybe human brains remember more than, than we realize. Well, the thing that I've talked about a long time is that, you know, if you do a little computing of, say, I had a video camera and a microphone that I put on my eyeglasses. Now, that was a long time before Google Glass. What would it take in terms of computer memory and speed to just remember everything that I ever saw in my life? and every word are ever uttered or heard. And the answer is, we're passing that threshold right now. And so if you imagine that, you could sort of say, well, gosh, what was I doing on October 6th, 1963? And it would just essentially bring you up all that information. So essentially, it would provide an extended memory. You did experience all of that. But it, a lot of it was thrown away by the brain just because there's a, you only got so much brain to store things in. This is a very interesting area. And I think this human augmented memory through these cognitive computers is going to be one of the things that's most helpful in the short term. Of course, we're, we're talking about keeping the memory external to humans, but one day if you had brain-machine interface, you could connect the two in the computers, and all that memory and all that computing power would hook directly to our brain. Well, your eyes are part of your brain. Your ears are part of your brain. The nerves go out to, you know, the cochlea and so forth in your ears or your retina and your eyes, and then you're using electromagnetic waves or you know, waves in the air for sound to connect to the rest of the world. You know, if you have electromagnetic waves that are actually connecting your cell phone to the cell tower and then to the Internet, in a way, humans already are doing this. So you're saying in the future that distinction between where the human brain ends and the computer begins may become even more and more fuzzy. Well, if you think about it, we already live in much more, I think, than people realize in a world where... What we think is inside our head actually was outside of our head <laughs> and then, you know, got inside. And, and we can go back if you say, well, gee, I'd like to remember that exact wording of that sentence I read last night in the book. Well, you go back to the book and you reread it. Well, the book is an external part of your memory. <laughs> so your answer to that question is yes, it is becoming more fuzzy. Yeah. 
I mean, the, the big reason that humans advanced so far compared to the species that came before them was the ability to store information outside of their bodies that survived them. So I just view the virtual cognitive computing as an extension of what we've already done over the last 10,000 years from the birth of writing up through where we are today. Larry Smarr, thank you so much for speaking with us. It's been a pleasure. Larry Smarr is professor of computer science at the University of California, San Diego, and director of the California Institute for Telecommunications and Information Technology. Thanks to our brainy team. If I could just remember their names. Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance, right? Good. Also support from Google and Rena Shilsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to forget to remember. And as you do remember, there's more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, you could find and even download the Big Picture Science app. It's on iTunes, Android, and Windows 8. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because, after all, it brings back memories of the good old days, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, you could consider letting them know that you like the show. And don't forget to remember this. is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news in technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.